Octanon Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octanon verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Rich Devinny is a retired Navy SEAL commander and expert on optimal performance, high-performing teams, and leadership. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than 13 overseas deployments. Since his retirement in early 2017, he has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant. In January 2021, his incredible book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, was released. It's revolutionizing how corporations, companies, and teams are looking at performance and leadership in the real world. If you haven't heard him, you can listen to him here, obviously, but check him out on Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu, Ed Milet's incredible podcast, and Rich Roll, to name a few. To learn more specifically about Rich and his incredible work, go to theattributes.com to check out his free attributes assessment tool that measures the essential components of grit, mental acuity, and drive. Rich, thank you so much for being here. I should have just hit record when we first started because we had some gold already, but thank you so much for your time. You're a very popular man. A lot of people are trying to get a hold of you. So thank you for giving us your attention for the next hour or so. Well, thank you, Marcus. I'm, I'm honored to be here and I'm excited for our conversation. So thanks for having me. Your book, The Attributes, 25 Drivers of Optimal Performance are incredible. And there's a lot of things on here that we can go into. And I, I want to respect you by asking some uniquer questions if I can, to the best of my ability. When you were growing up, you were a water rat. Is there a philosophy or even a religion that impacted you at an early age that you really think may have actually contributed to some of the skill sets or the attributes that you currently have? Oh, man, what a great first question. Um, I grew up as a Catholic kid, going to Catholic school when I was an altar boy. And what I would say is that that upbringing, while really nice, probably shaped me, but not in the way people think. <laughs> so <laughs> it shaped me because it caused me to start asking questions about my environment and, and questions about life and questions about things uh, that oftentimes the priests and nuns at my school did not have satisfactory answers for me about. And, I, and it, it didn't make me feel uh, any animosity towards the, towards the faith or any, or any religion whatsoever. But what it did do was uh, highlight the fact that I think I am a natural skeptic in a good way. And I'm constantly asking the question, why, how, what, where, who? That was the first indication of my desire to really dive deep into elemental things. And, and I'm very fascinated with going down to the atomic level of things, because I think if you do that, you provide a clarity that can then be transferred and transposed into any facet of life. Uh, that's was the impetus of my curiosity and open-mindedness as I moved through my career. I love that idea because like you said, if we're continually questioning, it's not that we, we disrespect what we're questioning, but if we understand why we had this overarching truth, again, we can put that anywhere. Guru Santo, Bruce Lee's protege says that if I teach you one punch, you learn one punch. 
but if I teach you a concept, I teach you a thousand punches. And then, yeah. like you said, now you can frame that in any capacity, whether it be grit, whether it be leadership, what have you, and it serves you in any arena that you enter. Yeah, well, and it's funny because a lot of the criticism I've read and heard about education is that oftentimes education is focused on teaching people what to think versus how to think. And I see it. My boys are natural skeptics as well. So it's funny. I, my teenagers turn it on me, right? And they're like, they, they ask me, they ask me tough questions or why this or why that? And I'm like, what? Because I said so, but I recognize because yeah. I said so is not good enough. So I think as humans, it really behooves us to start to ask more questions not only of the world, but also of ourselves, uh, because I think introspection is one of the most powerful processes one can have in self-discovery and, and development of wisdom and knowledge and, and education. And think about an idea and ask yourself how you feel about it, and then maybe place yourself inside perspectives and outside perspectives. Just introspection is huge, I believe. I agree. And it helps you straw man any theory that you have or any belief system that you may or may not want to adhere to. Again, being aware of cognitive bias is the beginnings of not being victimized by it, right. but it's easy to be insulated, again, by the people, our, our circles, the things that we see, whether it be in the news, online, et cetera. What is a belief that you had, maybe even when you were in the SEALs, that now that you've been out may have turned out to be untrue in certain capacities for you? In the military, you are, I'm not going to say forced, you're, you're in a very known and conditioned environment inside of which you you actually need to think a certain way. To do the military mission and the military role, you have to approach it with a very specific mindset that in some cases, not all, in some cases can feel quite myopic. Oh, by the way, I appreciated that about the military because I was able to, especially as I, as I became more senior and was in there for a while, recognize it so that I might appreciate it. But then in getting out, I also recognized the ability to open the aperture and, and, the, and the, uh, the latitude that I had to open the aperture, because sometimes you just don't have that latitude based depending on what you're doing. And so I think that's, uh, that's a lot of what I've been able to learn and grow from and about since the military has been because of that. I've been able to proactively see life from a much different perspective. That's been really fun and fascinating, interesting. I was in the military, as you know, but I was only in for three years. I never got to deploy because of my injury. But being in that environment, like you said, you don't have the luxury of some of the capacities to open the aperture and see what else is out there. And in the book, you, you talk about the fact that you were able to sort of imitate a competitive nature when necessary or when you deemed it appropriate, yet your true nature you felt wasn't competitive, which I think comes back to what you were saying before about this question of why. Yeah, helping you yeah. see that if you're competitive, you wouldn't ask why. And the SEAL team specifically uh, allowed for more of that non-competitiveness than maybe other parts of the military. And the SEAL teams to have both is a very powerful dichotomy, right? Because you have certain guys who are very competitive and the competitive mind can immediately start to lay down rules, conditions, and boundaries inside of which one can say, this is how we win, okay? That's a very, very cool and powerful advantage, okay? But then you have a guy like me who doesn't like rules, doesn't like conditions, and asks the question, how can we do it differently? How can we go around? How can we bend this rule, do whatever? And that's powerful, too, because a mission, depending on what it, what it is, it may require running straight up the line, you know, and um, inside of which those rules and conditions apply, you have to kind of, it's a, it's a win mentality. Or it might be like, well, no, the best thing is to think completely different about it, right, differently about it and disrupt and come in in a way that no one ever thought. 
And I think both polarities are really powerful and enjoyed by special operations teams. Not all businesses, not all military units get to have that. Sometimes the competitiveness, well, in sports, man, I mean, you better be competitive. Like, I was never big in sports, right? And I recognize now why, because <laughs> I didn't really care <laughs> if we won or lost, right? I enjoyed lacrosse, which I played because I love the stick work. I love the teamwork. I love the intricacy of the game, you know, whether or not we won or lost really didn't move me very much. And, and that was an interesting revelation. But, uh, but you can see the advantages and disadvantages of, of the competitive versus non-competitive mind. And I also believe when I was in, you would have like a young guy, a PT stud that would come in at 20, mm-hmm. run, ruck, pull up, swim better than everybody else. But yet these other attributes, the resilience, yeah. he was used to that sort of adversity. But then if you put him in a situation where it's like, here's a handbook, we're going to work on near ambushes. And now he's like, well, this is difficult yep. for me. And then they just kind of come apart at the seams. So this is why it's so important to have that. And you even mentioned kind of like what you were alluding to, that dynamic subordination where it's important to have the capacity, especially in, in today's business. If you have a CEO and he's like, this is how it is, or a CEO and a COO or C-suite executives, and they're just kind of disseminating information, but yet they're not able to hear what's going on in the front line. They don't know what's going on at the ground level with that client or with that customer. It's impossible for them to actually really not only know what's truly going on, but then maybe even suspend that disbelief and say, how do we do this differently? How do we antiquate our current business model to revolutionize and disrupt what's going on in the industry? Yeah, athletics and sports, there's so many advantages to athletics and sports, uh, I think, growing up and being a part of them. And I believe that most of them, understanding win-lose, understanding competition, understanding that not everybody gets a trophy um, are parts of those advantages. But I believe a lot of the advantages of sports actually have very little to do with the skills that are executed on on a field, right? It's about those other things. Um, The thing about athletics and being in shape and fitness overall, it's actually only one facet of adversity, right? And it's oftentimes pretty certain, known, and conditioned. In other words, you understand it, and it's 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 easily understood and manipulated, and in some cases achieved. But you know, obviously, I'm not saying it's easy to get in super shape. But we found in the in SEAL training it was quite often the the super athletes would show up who were they could be Division One athletes or whatever, or even like Olympians show up and they quit. And the thought was because. Athletics is all about getting used to performing at peak, right? That's, you know, performance about, and you have to in athletics, you have to be able to set yourself up so that when you are conducting the job, you are at peak. SEAL life is almost the opposite. <laughs> you know, you, you hope you're at peak. That's the hope. But oftentimes you might be at zero uh, or less than zero and you still have to perform. Certainly SEAL training takes you down to sub zero and says, what can you do here? So, so I think it's important for people to understand the differences. And what are some of the advantages that can be drawn from athletics, both in terms of understanding skills and, and mastering something, but then also adversity and the, and the differences in, in that as well. There's certain and known adversity, and then there's uncertain and unknown adversity. There's a big difference in how we handle both. I love how you talk about that because when you're, you're talking about these attributes, you know, grit is a part of that, but it's not the only thing. And when you go to the attributes.com, you have that tool. And when I took that assessment, I seem to think that I'm moderately resistant. But then one of the things that you put in there that really kind of turned the tables was this idea of adaptability, the ability, the capacity to pivot and see what's going to happen when the unknown hits you. And then even when you get back to that baseline, now what happens when this other thing happens? Oh, and then when you put the other adversity on top of it, 
you've got these layers of it to where mm-hmm. you have to have these things before you get to the battlefield or otherwise it's going to be hard to figure it out in the, in the heat of it. Yeah, there's a term in the military environment, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called VUCA. It's, it, and it stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And the idea is that you design your training and your education, everything around being able to operate in VUCA environments. That, and that's really specifically what special operators do, SEALs, Green Berets, or any of them. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments are attribute-centric environments. Because just like I say in the book, it's difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill to an unknown environment, okay, which is when we start leaning on our attributes. So I think SEAL training and any type of environment that helps develop and tease out these attributes allow you to become better at those. I always kind of nicknamed SEALs. I felt like we were our real job was to be masters of uncertainty right? because we had to basically develop all the tools and the attributes so that we could drop into anywhere any environment. And regardless of how confusing or uncertain it was, we just had to figure it out, start moving through. And I think SEAL training weeds the folks out who somehow don't have a natural tendency to do that, right? I don't know how I got it because you can't get through SEAL training unless you're able to effectively manage all of this uncertainty and misery and all this stuff. And that just gets hyper-developed in a career. And then of course, immensely valuable when you actually get into combat, uh, because that's exactly what it is. It's interesting too to me because there are situations, and I was not at the level that you were in the military clearly, but when I was in infantry school, when they would um, give us training, sometimes they would smoke you. I would notice that there would be guys next to me, especially younger guys, because I was 38 when I got in. And the younger guys mentally would resist. Like they didn't want to do it. They were pissed off. They were angry. They were tired. They were hungry. And that made it hard for them to do what was asked of them, whether it be burpees or running or a ruck. But for me, I just tried to let go of resistance and get myself directly to this drill instructor, this drill sergeant, this captain, whoever it was, and do what they were asking me to do. And that allowed that mental resilience to not only foster, but that resistance to go away. Mm -hmm. And that was the first step in being able to just keep going as opposed to dragging your feet and making it worse than what it really is, or making it bigger than what it really is. If you just take into consideration that this is just a physical activity, just go through it and you're, you're going to get through it if you don't resist it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And pretty much all military training, regardless of what level, is really designed to tease out those attributes. A, the grit attributes, but also the mental acuity attributes. Because what you're talking about um, is a mental acuity drill. It's the ability to effectively compartmentalize, task switch, um, and understand, okay, in this moment, what is it that I have to actually worry about and focus on? That's really key when you're in deep challenge, stress, and uncertainty, is to ask yourself, okay, what in this moment can I control? All right. And then when you pick it, you move to it, whatever that is, whatever that is, it could be like a couple days. Hey, I'm just going to get to the next couple days. It could be I'm getting to the next meal. It could be I'm just wait to the next 10 seconds. Okay, because that's all I got. Or I'm going to take the next step because that's all I got. It modulates based on the subjective uh, perspective of the individual. But anybody who's able to do that will find themselves able to better, more effectively walk through step through uncertainty, challenge, and stress versus someone who is unable to do that. The coup de grace, kind of the crucible of SEAL training is Hell Week. Bud's basic underwater demolition SEAL training. That's basic SEAL training where a sailor goes through six months and becomes a Navy SEAL. Week five of that is called Hell Week. Hell Week has existed since day one, since Draper Kaufman first put the first NCDUs through training. And you start on a Sunday afternoon. That's when they kind of start you. They break you out of your tents and you know start screwing with you. And you go all the way till Friday of that, the Friday afternoon of that week. 
And throughout that whole time, throughout that whole six and a half, seven days, you only sleep for about two and a half hours for the whole time. And you're constantly doing, you know, running with boats in your head, you know, exercising with po- telephone poles, freezing. You're, you're cold, wet, tired, hungry, sandy. It sucks. Um, you get most quitters during Hell Week. Well, there's a truism that's known in SEAL training during Hell Week. And that is if you think about Friday on Monday, you will quit. And they've done exit interviews with guys who haven't made it. And a lot of, and I haven't seen a lot of that data, the guys who've done it, I've talked to here and there. But a lot of the commentary from guys who do quit are, you know, you hear things like, well, we were having this done to me. And I started thinking about what we had to do next. Or I started mm-hmm. thinking about like, what was coming up tomorrow. Or I started thinking about I had four more days of this, right? And I couldn't take it. You tried to eat the whole elephant is what you did, you know? And so the idea is to chunk it down to pieces so that you might march through it. It's easier said than done. Uh, sometimes. And some of us are a little bit more naturally able to do it than others, but it can be practiced. That's the thing about it too. It's simple, but it's not easy. These attributes in an environment like that, is it possible to have an attribute that's sort of like in its very early infancy? Can it come out and come to complete adulthood, so to speak, in the middle of a, say, hell week? Or does it take longer? Or does it just depend on the individual and the environment? I'm sure that it's nature versus nurture in some capacities, but what would that look like? I talk about what I call dormant attributes in yes. the book. I think what you're talking about would describe a dormant attribute. So just for everybody's, just to make everybody feel okay, okay, all of us have all of the attributes, <laughs> right? We're all born with all of them. Now, the difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, okay? So for example, if we take adaptability and, and 10 is high and one is low, I might be a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me without my, outside my control, it's fairly easy for me to just go with the flow, to you know, just roll with it. Someone else might be a level three on adaptability, which means when the environment changes outside their control, um, it's not very easy for them to roll with it or go with the flow. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. It's to judge it would be like judging our hair color. It's ridiculous. It's, it's just how we show up. And all of us have a different set in terms of where we fall. But then we go into situations and environments, and we may in fact have what are called dormant attributes. In other words, we may not understand or know that we have a lot of one attribute because we've never been put into a situation that's tested or teased that out. So something like Hell Week could certainly tease out some attributes. It probably did for me. I'd have to really explore what it, you know, w- which ones it did. Probably several because SEAL, because Hell Week, because SEAL training is so intense. You go through the experience and then suddenly you're performing or you're doing your acting and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know. So anybody who has a story in their lives that can end with the phrase, I didn't know I had it in me, is likely a story of someone's dormant attribute coming to the fore. We all have certain levels. Certainly nature and nurture, environment and situation can develop attributes. So if someone, for example, if a child, for example, is naturally low on adaptability, but they're a military brat, which is a slang for saying they're just, they have parents who are in the military, which means they're going to move around a lot, okay? That child in the conduct of moving around five or 10 times during childhood and swapping schools and meeting new friends may in fact likely develop adaptability because of that environment. But the opposite might be true too. That child might struggle the whole time because they're low on adaptability. So it really depends on what happens. It depends on the individual. Certainly environment can help though uh, develop. And, and because we're so plastic when we're young, those experiences we have when we're young do a lot to forge some of this stuff all the way up until we're in our 20s. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And there's also something that you talk about that I love, which is this notion of optimal performance as opposed to peak performance. And, and when I coach people and individuals and companies, it's the same thing where they have to understand that you describe it as the peak. You may work your ass off to get to this point, but it's very short-lived and there's no other place to go but downhill once you've hit that peak. Optimal, or I even say sometimes 
the best possible behavior at that time. Appropriate behavior, perhaps, is the way to go with it when you're in the middle of it. How can we find the place where optimal performance is for us at that time? And then the other part is this optimal performance is what allows it to be sustainable, allows us to continue on that, that path. Yeah, well, and I think the idea would be we can optimal performance is for all the time, you know, because optimal can look like peak, you know, my the best I optimal performance is doing the best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment. Okay, that may at times look like peak and it's flow states and, and things are clicking and you or you might prepare like again, peak oftentimes has to be scheduled and prepared for and planned, right? right. The athlete does this all the time. We can do this as a, as someone in business. I'm going to give a presentation. And I'm going to just plan and prepare so that I peak when I'm giving that presentation. Nothing wrong with that. It should be encouraged. Optimal allows us to explain all performance. And it allows us to not only explain all performance, it allows us to start not feeling bad. In fact, not only not feeling bad, but patting ourselves on the back for those times when we're at zero, we have almost nothing. And all we got is taking one step. During your injury, as you're going through your situation, you were in many, many moments. And I've talked to veterans who've, you know, one of my best friends who I talk about in the book who lost his legs, talk about, hey, like there were days I was living minute to minute. I mean, I was going minute by minute, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's movement. That is optimal performance. That's doing the best you can in the moment. And I think optimal performance allows us to start understanding performance holistically from a healthier, more responsible way. It allows us to start modulating, right? Because again, I don't need to be at my peak when I'm driving to the grocery store. So why? I can I can actually modulate a little bit. So I'm saving up a little energy. It allows us to really begin to understand performance at a realistic level. And then I think more effectively plan our peaks and say, okay, here's where I want to peak. Here's where I want to peak. But most importantly, what optimal performance allows us to do is understand that no matter what happens, I will perform. Okay, I will be able to do something. Okay, that I think is the definition of true confidence is someone can say, hey, no matter what happens, no matter how the situation might go or deteriorate, I know that I will work through it. It may not be pretty. (laughs) Okay, it may be decidedly ugly. But a phrase in the teams is like we sometimes finish missions like, oh, my gosh, that was really pretty ugly that, you know, that was that did not look good. Okay, but we got it done. We got the mission done. So that's perfectly okay. And we just have to recognize that. Could you speak a little bit to flow states? Because when people think optimal performance, they think flow states. And you're also talking about the necessity of practice and perhaps even visualization. Uh, you talk about even floating as a form of like sort of detachment to create this capacity to have better visualization. Could you talk a little bit about those things? Flow states are, are really uh, can be described as any state where someone feels like they're completely in the zone, right? Everything's clicking. And and um, and so a couple of my good friends have written about this. Stephen Kotler is one of them who wrote a great book called Rise of Superman, talking about flow states and this idea where you're you're in an active state, right? But it's a teetering where you're experiencing something that is just hard enough that it's giving you, there's a challenge and there's focus, but not too hard to be overwhelming. And it's almost like time disappears and you're able to perform in ways that are just really remarkable at the time. And Stephen will talk about how the neurochemistry that's created during flow states actually allows people to perform even better, almost superhuman in some cases, which is really cool. The problem with flow states are that they're somewhat fleeting and they're a little bit difficult to attain, right? So they're not all the time. So that's one thing. I I think understanding what flow states are and and understand that flow states most often are going to be achieved when there's elements of skill involved that's been mastered, right? Someone's surfing a wave or even even in a gunfight, there's elements of those skills that you're conducting that are already relegated to the unconscious mind. So that's flow states. But you know, in terms of the flow tanks and the stuff we were doing in terms of the mind gym, 
the idea is to attempt to create a working relationship with your brain. As human beings, sometimes don't recognize the conscious ability we have to affect our physiology. Sometimes mm-hmm. we feel like we're just in react mode, right? Where the environment happens and, and we react. And oftentimes, if we let that be the case, that's the case, right? The Something's going to happen. It's going to come into our nervous system. We're just going to feel how we feel. But we can, in fact, start to affect our physiology more than we often perceive. And that's, you know, that goes to our sympathetic versus parasympathetic mer- nervous system. It goes to the idea that through visualization, you can, in fact, generate biochemistry and neurochemistry. I talk about like, you know, visualizing it when my kids were young, they used to take naps on my chest, I'd be laying on the couch, and they just take naps there. What a wonderful, loving, awesome experience. And I remember feeling that. And to this day, I can visualize that and begin to generate some of those same neurochemicals, neurobiology, because our brains during active visualization, don't necessarily know the difference between if it's really happening or if it's just happening in our brain, which means you're affecting chemicals, which means we can begin to more actively change our state from happy to sad, from sad to happy or whatever, from excited to angry or vice versa. But to understand that and understand that we can develop that relationship with our brain and our nervous system really begins to empower people in any performance realm. That was part one of my interview with Rich Devinney, a retired Navy SEALs officer with over 20 years of experience. He's also a speaker, facilitator, consultant, and author of the groundbreaking book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Octanon Verba, where Rich discusses how much human beings truly control and how that impacts our ability to overcome adversity and lead others. Rich and I also discuss the difference between being proactive and reactive, how to ask the right questions, what it means to practice resilience in everyday life, and how to hold yourself accountable for the decisions that you make. You can find out more about Rich and his book at theattributes.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.